Okay. All right. So, love. That's a lot to unpack. Okay, let me skip ahead here. Okay, so just from looking up the word agape, which is kind of what we're focused on, what the video is focused on, um, 143 occurrences in the New Testament, it's a verb, and from Thayer's Greek lexicon, to be full of goodwill and exhibit the same, to regard the welfare of, to take pleasure in the thing, to prize it above all other things, be unwilling to abandon it or do without, to steadfastly cleave to, affectionate reverence, prompt obedience, grateful recognition of benefits received. So as you look over these definitions in this slide here, just think about what it is that stands out to you about the word love and agape love. And, and for me, I don't know about you, but, but for me, the part of speech is what stands out to me, like the video talked about. It's, it's a verb. You know, it's not, a, it's not an adjective or a noun or anything like that. It's, it's actually doing or, or acting. Uh, and that's, you know, exactly what the video is talking about. Any DC Talk fans in here from way back when? DC Talk, love is a verb, does not hold up well, I'm sorry to say. But it, that whole song talks about putting love into action. And that's what we're going to talk about. Um, next slide. Because we often treat love, like the video said, as some sort of ethereal uh, feeling, right? It's just some sort of concept. It's nothing concrete. And that's the, that's the way I, that's why I love the Greek language. I'm not a, I'm not a Greek scholar. I'm just kind of this casual admirer of the Greek. Um, so don't ask me any tough Greek questions. But what I love about the Greek language is the fact that you can have a word like love in, that means so much to us in English, but in Greek they parse it out. They have separate words to capture the nuance of a word like love. Um, Kyle, I'm going to skip over the next slide because I'm afraid our well, maybe it's going to work. Let's watch this commercial. Anybody see that at the Super Bowl? I saw, I was watching the Super Bowl and this commercial came up and I was like, oh my goodness, I'm teaching on love next week in class. This is perfect. Thank you, New York Life. Um, but what I love is the visual representation of, of agape, of, of people serving and helping and doing, and it talks about sacrifice, and that's what we're talking about. But be warned, there's some big, big implications for us when we start to learn how to love the way God wants us to love. Huge implications that we're going to get to. What I love about the golden rule is the way Jesus puts a positive perspective, a positive proactive look at how we should live. Do to others as you would have them do unto you. But think about, contrast that with some of these. So, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge from Leviticus 19.18. 
Hillel the Elder was a um, Jewish scholar, teacher, expert in the law around the time of Christ. When explaining the Torah to a Gentile, he said, what is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. This is the whole Torah. In the one of the apocryphal books, Tobit 4 verse 15, do to no one what you yourself dislike. Thales was an early, early Greek philosopher and mathematician. He said, avoid doing what you would blame others for doing. And then Isocrates said, do not do to others that which angers you when they do it to you. Can you see the contrast in what those philosophers and those writings said in, in relation to what Jesus said? What's the big difference? The big difference is what these others wrote about and said is easier to do because all you have to do is avoid certain behaviors, avoid doing certain things. You don't want to be cheated? Well, just don't cheat other people. But Jesus takes that and spins it on its head, and he says, no, no, do to others what you would have them do unto you. Don't just avoid certain behaviors. Be proactive about doing certain behaviors. Let's start with what love is not. Okay, love is not on your terms. And we're going to get to this a little bit more in a second. A Christ-like love doesn't come from us doesn't originate from us. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. A Christ-like love is about other people. It's not about yourself. It's about giving others the right of way and considering them. Secondly, love is not a spectator sport. We can't sit on the sidelines and look at things and wish they were different and not doing anything about it. We can't complain when the church isn't doing a certain thing, when we are there, when we can offer up our talents and our resources to make a change for the better. Robert Kennedy had this great quote. Robert Kennedy was a real champion for um, uh, the, the oppressed, the poverty-stricken. And he said, each, man, each time a man stands up for an ideal or acts to improve the lot of others or strikes out against injustice, he sends forth a tiny ripple of hope. And those ripples build a current which can sweep down the mightiest walls of oppression and resistance. Love is not a spectator sport. Third, love is not exclusive. We often put boundaries on who we love, right? Paul rebuked Peter for doing just this in Galatians chapter 2. Remember when Peter was hanging out with the Gentile Christians, but then some of the Jewish Christians showed up, and Peter said, oh, okay, see ya. I'm going to hang over here with the Jewish folks now because he didn't want to be affiliated with the Gentiles, right? He was putting a boundary on, on who he was loving because of the Jewish leaders that came in. And we often do the same thing. You know, it's like... Um, when you go to SeaWorld and you're sitting in the first few rows and they make that announcement, they say, if you're sitting in the first three rows, you're going to get wet. It's a guarantee. And that's what Christ-like agape love is. It's not, it's not exclusive. There are no boundaries around it. It's like whoever passes in front of the Christian, you're going to get loved. I don't care who you are. I don't care what color you are. I don't care your, your, your economic background, your social status. If you step in front of the Christian, you're going to get loved. If you sit in the first three rows of SeaWorld, you're going to get wet. It's not exclusive. There are no boundaries. We often sometimes put barriers up around, uh, against uh, giving uh, people love. Uh, for example, we charge them for access. You, know, you can be loved, and you can come in and be part of this community and this loving community, but you've got to pay a premium for it. You put up a paywall. Or let's say um, you have to act a certain way. You have to follow our rules. You have to dress like we do. I was, I'll tell you, I was once uh, 
turned down from serving on the Lord's table in a church because I didn't happen to have a tie on that Sunday morning. Okay, This is the kind of stuff we're talking about. Maybe you've experienced something similar. Uh, we often say you have to behave right. You have to follow our traditions, our rules. That's a barrier to love. Love is not tolerant. Oh, man, this is, this is something that the world at large doesn't want to hear. Um, but if you think about the way Jesus taught and the way Jesus treated people, he loved people. He met people where they were in their life, but he wasn't necessarily tolerant. He didn't necessarily condone their behavior or their lifestyle. When you think about John chapter 8 and Jesus ministering to the woman who was caught in the middle of adultery and everyone wanted to stone her, he forgave her, but he said, go and sin no more. Okay, love, agape love is not tolerant in the sense that we can just allow and stand by when we see people, uh, people doing things that are against the will of God, that, that, is a, that it's a, a life habits, choices that they make that we know are in contrast to what God is teaching and what God would have us to do. And that's a tough one to swallow, but love is not tolerant. Love is not a social media connection, okay? Let's just get this out of the way right here. Do not substitute a Facebook friend for real, meaningful relationships. And I'm sorry, if someone friends me on Facebook who has never even tried to talk to me I'm sorry, I gotta throw the challenge flag out on you on that one. The red flag is out there on the field. Do not substitute social media for real world connections and real relationships. Love, what else is a love not? Love is not easy. Love is not easy. Just like joy is not easy because joy, like the video said, joy is not is something for a Christian that isn't uh, conditional upon your circumstances. Circumstances change. That's happiness. Happiness ebbs and flows, right? Joy is something that's constant. It's something that's found because it's found within us because of what we know about who God is. So that's not easy. It's not easy to make a choice to be joyful in the midst of suffering and trials and tribulations. It's not easy to love. Okay. All right. Don't get ahead of me there, Kyle. Okay. Love isn't easy. We're going to talk about that in a second. There was this Irish boxer who was this really great athlete who decided to give it all up because he was converted to Christianity and he wanted to be a he became a street evangelist. So he's in the streets of Dublin and he's preaching to the crowd and a great group of people have gathered together and there's one just really antagonistic guy in the crowd, you know, yelling things back to the preacher, trying to distract him. But the former boxer was undeterred, went on with his sermon. So this antagonistic man comes, steps out of the crowd, slaps the guy across the face. Irish boxer, former boxer, clenches his fists up, and he, then he says, no, no, Jesus told me to turn the other cheek. And so he does, and he continues preaching. Well, the, the young man slaps him across the other cheek. Well, at that, the Irish boxer takes off his coat, he rolls up his sleeves, and he says, the Lord gave no further instructions. <laughs> We love up to a point. That's what makes love so difficult. Uh, it isn't easy. We love up to a certain point, and then we say, that's it. I can't take it anymore. I can't take being railroaded again, cheated again, stepped on again. It's not easy. A Christ-like love is costly. Just like the video said, you know, when the Samaritan tended to the victim's wounds, he gave up his time, at least two days, right? He gave up his wages. He tended to the man. He gave up something. He sacrificed something. So as we're talking about the implications of that for us today, we have to start thinking about the resources that we have. 
What has God given to you that you can use to be a blessing to others? It, it's going to cost you something, and it has to. But through that, through that, God is made known. God is made known to the world. It isn't easy to love others. It isn't easy to love without some kind of ulterior motive, whether it's conscious or subconscious. But time and time again, God places love above everything else. Okay, let's go to the next one. We're going to be in 1 John a lot. I'm going to just read out a few verses. Um, and I'm going to actually just mention a few things so you can kind of read along. I won't stop too long to discuss it. Um, but again, if you just want to underline some things or make a few notes, you can go back and look later. God is love, 1 John 4, 7. You want the perfect definition of love? You don't look to novelists or poets or songwriters or movies or books. You look to God. Love isn't an attribute of God. You know, it's not like a characteristic. When someone says, describe God, you might say, you know, uh, merciful, caring, forgiving. Some might say uh, wrathful, right? Uh, just. There's a lot of things you can, a lot of words you can use to describe God, but love is not an attribute of God. The Bible says love is what God is. Okay, that's his nature. And so because of that, everything God is is an outflowing of that, that original fact that God is love. Therefore, love starts with God. I said earlier that love is not on our terms, and it isn't on our terms because a godly agape love is, is a love that starts with him. 1 John 4.19 says that we love, we love because he first loved us. He made the first move. Love always starts with God, never starts with us. And so because of these things, God wanted to show us what love is all about. He demonstrated his love for us. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, I'm going to read parts of verse 4 and 5. Ephesians 1 verses 4 and 5. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Language in the Bible is purposeful. I've said it before when I've taught this class that there, there's a, every word in the Bible is there for a reason, and it's no accident. Now, notice that the, the verse here says that God, we weren't birthed through Jesus Christ. We weren't begotten through Jesus Christ. We were adopted through Jesus Christ. So why would he use the word adoption there? What's the significance? Some of you may be adoptive parents. Some of you may know parents who, who did adopt a child. But the one thing about adoptions is that they are always planned. They're always purposeful. I've heard of unplanned pregnancies. I've never heard of an unplanned adoption. And that's the reason why Paul uses the word adoption rather than birthed or begotten is because God chose us. Okay, It was an active choice on his part because adoptive parents, they have love to give. And they want to give that love to some child. God was the same way. He had love to give. He had love to demonstrate. He adopted us because it gives him great pleasure to do so. For those of you that don't know, I'm in, uh, I'm, I work in video production at St. Jude, and I do a lot of outward-facing marketing videos and commercials for the hospital, and I had the chance to interview the 17th patient ever admitted to St. Jude in the early 60s, a guy named um, Dwight Tosh, 17th patient. And he was 13 years old, he, came to, he had leukemia. And while he was sitting in his bed, um, Danny Thomas, the founder of St. Jude, came in, 
and was making a visit and sat down with Dwight and spoke to him and spent a lot of time with him. And it really just stayed with him all those years later. So in this interview, he's talking about that day. And he said, you know, when after Mr. Thomas left, he said, I felt like if I was the only kid in the world who had contracted cancer, Mr. Thomas still would have built St. Jude just for me. And that's exactly what God did for us. If you were the only person in the world who sinned against God, the only person, he still would have sent Jesus to die for you. And that's what love is. Love is given by God. 1 John 3, 1 says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. And again, going to the, to the Greek of that phrase, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. You could also translate that from the Greek as saying, From what country is this love? This is incredible. You ever seen somebody... You probably have because we're, we're all on YouTube and social media and stuff. You've seen videos of people just doing crazy stuff, stupid stuff, and you're thinking, what planet is this guy on? You know, That's kind of the idea. What planet is this love from? What, behold, what manner of love is this? What country is this love from? They haven't, the world hadn't seen anything like it before. And of course not because it's a supernatural love. It's from God. It's, it's nothing we've ever seen before um, because God's love, think about this, God's love is not based on if. God's love is based on even if, right? Not if, but even if. We can never fully comprehend God's love, but you know, the more you learn about it, it should, it should change you. So, the next thing. Okay, here comes the implications. How can we learn to love? There's a logical progression here. Let's go to the next slide. Logical progression. We know, we've, we've seen that God is love. Okay, so therefore... Uh, there's other verses that tell us that we need to be like God, be imitators, right? Uh, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So the logical, logical conclusion, therefore, is we are to be love. And that's, that's not a typo. It doesn't say we are to love or we are to love others. It says we are to be love. Our very essence, who we are as Christians, just like God is love, our very essence of who we are, our identity, should be to love other people. As I said earlier, you know, but the sea world analogy, again, it doesn't matter who gets in our way that they're going to, going to be loved. All right, next. Love is not what a Christian does. It's a manifestation of what a Christian is. Now, this may seem a little contradictory to what I said earlier and what the video talked about, about agape love being about doing things. Okay, this may seem contradictory, but it isn't. Because what we have to do is we have to think about that essence of who we are, that if you start, if you, if you leave here today and you're focused more on outward acts, I've got to do this, this, and this because that's what a Christian is expected to do, then you've missed the point. It's not based on outward acts. We don't start there. We start with kind of an inward self-evaluation of getting, you know, love right in our hearts and minds. And as a result, what comes of that is a loving attitude, a loving spirit, okay? Not out of obligation or not because of fear, because there's something that bad that God's going to do to us if we don't, but because that's who we are as Christians. We are loving people. Um, there's a difference between fear and love. You know, if you, if you became a Christian solely because of fear, then something's wrong. If you became a Christian because you were fearful of going to hell, 
I mean, that may, that may motivate a little kid, um, but it shouldn't motivate us today. If you, obey God's, if you obey God solely because out of fear or obligation, then something is wrong. If you go about your daily life, you know, for, for a while there, you know, I was doing things that I thought a Christian should do because that's what a Christian should do, and not because I really had any kind of um, good heart underneath that, if that makes any sense. So those are big implications. Big implications that when we start to love the way God wants us to love, it starts to get pretty, pretty heavy. But it isn't really complicated. Love God, love people. And I think we've, we've done a pretty good job uh, over the years, through the centuries, Christians and churches all over. We've done a really, really good job of complicating Christianity. Okay? But it, time and time again, Jesus says, love God, love people. Love God, love people. And, and that's, that's kind of it. The call to love people is as foundational to the Christian faith as the call to know who God is and what he's like. 1 John 3.11 says that to love each other is a message that's been around since the beginning. It's always been part of God's plan. But there are some uh, lies about love, lies about love that Satan would have us to believe. First thing, Satan wants us to believe that love comes later. Satan wants us to believe that uh, what really matters most is what you believe and not how you behave. There's a big difference. He wants us to believe that we have to have all of our doctrine right before we can start loving. Um, about 10, 12, 15 years ago, I visited a church, and the minister got up, and it was a small little country congregation. And he got up, and he, he said that everybody needs to have a plan for going to heaven. And he said, your plan should include attending church services, reading your Bible, getting involved, participating in worship. And he goes down through this whole checklist of things. And then he said, afterward, all that, he says, and if you do those things, you might get to heaven. And this, all these years later, I was struck by that. And I, I still think about that, that well, you have to get this right first before you can start loving. Or you have to get all this right first before you can have access to God's love. A true Christian, according to John, is not so much about what, it's not about how much he does, but, but about how much he loves. And of course, the behavior is going to follow. The behaviors that we do as Christians are going to follow, you know, the, the status of our hearts, right? But it's not, again, going back to what I said earlier, it's not about this sense of obligation. In other words, if I'm wrong on love, I can't be right on anything else. And that's, and that's how some people can be so devoted to their doctrine and yet so mean to other people. Has anyone ever hurt you before? I mean, really hurt your spirit, your feelings? I mean, not just, not just making a snide comment, right, that, oh, that hurt my feelings, but I mean, really just treated you so poorly that, I mean, it just broke your spirit and broke you down. I'm going to be honest. Some of the very, very worst memories I have involve church. Now, I've grown up in the church. I've been to, going to Churches of Christ my entire life. Some of the absolute worst memories I have are of people in the church. And so much so that, you know, if I, wasn't, if I, had, if I did not have that background of going to church from a very, very young age, from the time I was born, if I didn't have that background, I might not be in the church today because of the things that I went through. And 
You know, I see some of you guys nodding your heads. You've, maybe you've experienced the same thing. Anybody experienced a church split and sat through something like that? I mean, it is, it is awful to hear people in the wake of all that getting up and trying to blame each other and yelling at each other. I was at a church for like a year. My family and I had switched churches. I was in this church for a year, and they, they had this huge split. And we were just kind of in the middle of it. We didn't know what was going on. So that's what I'm talking about. Is that and, and there's no and there's no wonder why people on the outside look at Christians they don't want any part of what we're doing because they look at us as hypocrites and that's the big you know how it is that's the biggest criticism people have of Christians we're a bunch of hypocrites and you really can't blame them when when they see the way we're treating other people when they see the way that we're splitting up and yelling at each other you don't have a tie on oh this church down the road does it this way well that's wrong we can't affiliate with this group because they don't believe the way we believe i mean it just goes on and on and on and there's no wonder because there's such a lack of love that's going on and that's what i'm saying that there are big implications there's a big life application for us when we start to really really dig in to see the way god wants us to love and so I'll say, if, I, if, I, if I'm ever in church and you kind of pass me in the hall and I seem a little guarded, I mean, there's a reason for that. I mean, it's hard to come out of something that I went through and not have a little bit of distrust of, of people in the church. So I wanna, let me apologize in advance. If I ever seem a little distant, a little you know, guarded, a little bit like I don't really want to engage because that's, that's stuff that I'm still dealing with. And I'm going to be honest. I'm going to confess that to you guys. That's something I'm still struggling with and I'm trying to work through. So love God, love people, and that's what matters most. And I think, you know, talking about joy, how can you be joyful in the midst of suffering? Clint, how can you be joyful when you went through so much stuff in the church and come out the other side still being in church and still attending, still trying to get involved? How can you be joyful because of that? Because, like we said, like the video said, that joy is this, this inward recognition of what God is doing. And I see it now on the backside. I went through all of that, and I can be joyful because I've learned just what I'm saying here today. I've learned a lot about how, how, uh, how not complicated Christianity is. You know, growing up in the church, especially if you grew up in a church of Christ, you learn a certain dogma, right? And you learn certain steps to salvation, certain things you have to do, and there's a certain tradition, things like that. And I used to think that having that all, that was, that was what was most important. And I used to be that. I used to think that if, if you were the church down the road and, and you clapped to a song, that, that I was like, oh, oh, I don't know about that. I used to be the guy that if, you, if there was a praise team, you know, up at the front, I was a little, oh my goodness, you know. Um, but I can be joyful because, I'm, because joy is learning to understand what God is doing in your life. And I think on the backside of all of that, like I said, that, that I've learned a lot about the nature of Christianity, that it isn't really as complicated as we make it out to be. Um, so that's, in studying this and preparing for this lesson, trying to learn that difference between joy and happiness. You know, we, we may not be that joyful in the moment, um, and that's okay. It's okay not to be joyful in the moment, but like Joseph, who could see the good that God was doing, we have to kind of discipline ourselves to kind of see the, see the good that God is doing, and we can draw joy out of that. So why is it so hard? Why is it so hard to love the way that God wants us to love? Because it isn't natural. It's, it's a supernatural love. True, because true godly love is a love that's free from any ulterior motives. You know, worldly love is infected with a certain degree of selfishness. 
like I'm gonna love you if you give me a little something in return. The world loves because there's something lovely about the person that you're giving the love to. Um, oh my goodness, I'm like really got off into a tangent there. Okay, whew. Uh, so point number two, finally, is that Satan wants us to believe that love comes naturally. Okay, uh, in Luke six thirty-two. Um, Jesus talks about, hey, don't love other people just because they love you back. The world does that. That's easy to do. Think about it. You don't need God. You don't need God to love lovely people. You don't need God to love people who are going to love you back. And you definitely don't need God to love anything that furthers your own self-interest. It's, it's, it's not natural to invest in other people with no thought of return. That's what makes godly love so incredible. So do you know what it takes to love with the way the way God wants us to love, it takes a resurrection. You gotta pass from spiritual death to life to really understand that. And, and that's what Romans 5, 5 talks about, is God teaching us how to love, because the outflow of love is the result of the inflow of the Holy Spirit, okay? If you're taking it in, if you're spending time in scriptures, if you're spending time in prayer, if you're learning more, that outflow of the Holy, the outflow of the Holy Spirit is gonna, is gonna just, just explode in, in, in loving kindness to everyone. Love is nothing new. That's the third thing. Here's another thing. When, when in the book of John, Jesus is up there in the upper room with his disciples, and he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And I'm struck by that. I'm thinking, why does Jesus say that's a new commandment? Surely his apostles knew what love was. Surely his apostles knew how to, you know, love and be friendly with other people. But Jesus says it's a new commandment. But why does he use the word new? It's a new commandment because it takes receiving out of the equation. It's a love that gives without any promise of return. 1 John 3.16 says that we can know what real love is because Jesus gave his life for us. God sent Jesus into this world without any guarantees that you would love him back, without any guarantees that you'd actually appreciate it, and he still did it. So what's the implication for that? 1 John 3.16 says that God laid down his life for us. So logically, we think, what's our response? God laid down his life for us. we got to lay down our life for him. No, 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 no. That's not what 1 John 3.16 says. 1 John 3.16 says he gave his life for us, so we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Wow. You talk about something. I don't, i got to be honest. I, I, there's probably one person in this room, and that's my wife, who I know for a fact that I would die for. Uh, I can't say that the rest of you would be that fortunate. Um, but that's just us as humans, right? But God says we are to love with that kind of love that would, be, that would motivate us to be willing to lay down our lives for the people in this room, the people in this church, the brethren across, uh, across the church. You know, in his book, how am I doing on time? I'm totally losing track. I'm good? Three or four minutes? Okay. Um, in his book, the Miracle on the River Kwai, Ernest Gordon recounts his experience as a Japanese POW. If you know anything about uh, Japanese POW camps, they were in World War II. It was awful, especially because these guys over there, after the fall of Singapore, had to march hundreds of miles into the jungle. They had to build this railroad for the Japanese. And they always had these regular tool checks. And Ernest Gordon recounts a, a time when, during a tool check, a shovel came up missing, and the Japanese guards lined everybody up, and they said that we're going to shoot every POW one at a time until the thief steps out. After a few tense moments, one soldier steps out, and the Japanese immediately grab him and beat this guy to death. Well, later in the day, they do another tool check. They realize they had miscounted earlier in the day. There were no tools that were missing. 
But that one soldier was so afraid of his, his comrades getting shot and killed by the Japanese. He was so afraid that that would happen that he stepped out and sacrificed himself for the rest of the guys in his group. And that sacrifice, Gordon recounts, changed their attitudes toward each other and it changed their attitudes towards their enemies. And I think about what Jesus has done for us, what God did for us, shouldn't that change our attitudes towards each other? Shouldn't that change our attitudes towards the people we consider our enemies? Fourth, Satan wants us to believe that love is abstract. Like we said earlier, you know, we often treat love like some sort of concept or feeling. You know, Jesus, Jesus rarely said right out, he rarely said, I love you. But through his actions, he said, see, I love you. James 2 says, don't, show, don't tell me about your faith, show me. You know, God doesn't want us to love everybody abstractly. He wants you to love someone concretely. So don't tell me how much you love kids. You know, sign up and teach a Bible class. Don't tell me how, how much you want the whole world to hear about Jesus. Go on one mission trip. Sit across from someone else and read the Bible to them and see, it, see their eyes just light up when they, when they hear the good news. Don't talk about how you wish the congregation would do this or do that. Stand up, raise your hand, get involved, make a change for the better. I'll close with this. There was a uh, church group that was putting on a, a play of the life of Jesus. They had all the costumes and you know, the sets and everything. And at the very end, Jesus has resurrected and he's on the mount there with his apostles and he's about to ascend into heaven. And so the actor that was playing Jesus had this uh, you know, rope attached to him on his back under his costume that was attached all the way backstage to a, a pulley system. So at the right moment, the stagehand backstage starts pulling Jesus, you know, and there goes Jesus rising up into the rafters. And he's, you know, uh, saying the Holy Spirit's going to come, you know, meet him in Jerusalem, all that. Well, right before Jesus disappears in the rafters, the stagehand uh, loses his grip on the rope. And here comes Jesus just craning back down to the stage and uh, to the horror of the audience. And at the very last second, the stagehand regains his grip on the rope and it kind of stops Jesus short of just crashing onto the stage. And there Jesus is just kind of, you know, hanging like a foot off the stage. And the actor just says, uh, oh yeah, one more thing. <laughs> and I like that story because I think that if Jesus were here today in the flesh, as we're about to close, he'd say, oh yeah, one more thing. Just, just love each other. That, that's it. Love God and love people. And that's all I have for you guys today. Thank you so much for your attention. I really, really appreciate it. Great. Thanks, Glenn. All right. Let me stop this, and then we'll...